Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Mike Rosenberg from Columbia Credit Union. Mike says they trust what they see and hear on OPB, and that aligns with Columbia Credit Union's brand. From the Gert Boyle studio at OPB, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Dave Miller. Where the mighty Columbia surges into the even mightier Pacific, the waves, the wind, the currents, and the shifting sandbars create what is often a very hazardous situation. More than 2,000 vessels and 700 lives have been lost at the Columbia Bar. Many more have died in the surrounding area. That is how you get a nickname like the Graveyard of the Pacific. When recreational boaters or commercial fishermen get in trouble in these waters, highly trained members of the U.S. Coast Guard are sent out to do search and rescue. They're stationed at Cape Disappointment in Ilwaco, Washington. Christopher D'Amelio spent more than seven years there, eventually becoming a surfman, a qualification reserved for exceedingly talented rescue boat operators. D'Amelio has written a new book about that time and the rest of his 22-year Coast Guard career. It's called Life and Death at Cape Disappointment, and he joins us now. Welcome to the show. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much for have, for joining us. So in your prologue, you had one of your lifelong friends, a guy named Dave Hofkins, write it, and he says that when you and he were growing up, you were both interested in surfing, and one day you went out to go surfing, but it was too cold. There were no big waves, and so he said, let's call it a day. Let's go in, and you said, no, I'm, gonna, I'm going out. <laughs> you can wait in the car if you want, and he says you just went out past where the small waves were breaking and just sat in the water and stared out at the Pacific. You grew up in California for like an hour and a half. Do you remember that day? And I'm just curious if you remember what you were looking at. Um, I don't remember that specific day, but I, I surfed a lot by myself. I love the ocean. All I think about is the ocean. I love being in the ocean. I love surfing. Um, I used to surf by myself up in Washington and Oregon. Um, yeah, I don't remember that day, but that was not an uncommon thing. What would have been in your mind, do you think, as you were just looking out at it? Because it's one thing to, to love surfing. It's another to, to love the ocean so much that you could just get lost in it, staring out at it. What would be in your mind? So I kind of feel like being in the ocean and surfing is the only time where I don't really have a whole lot of thoughts. Mm. It's the opposite <laughs> my of my question then, isn't it? Yeah. My mind's always scrambling, thinking about something, something I need to do, something, you know, but when I'm surfing, I don't have a lot of thought. It's just kind of at peace. You know, the ocean's kind of mental and physical therapy for me, at least. I, I love it. Hmm. Um, yeah, there's not a lot of thought. It's very peaceful, even if it's big and scary. It's just it's very peaceful to me. Well, it's I mean, that's pretty ironic because you took something that was, you know, this this peaceful place for your mind and you turned it into a job where you had to have if you were going to be successful a hundred things on your mind to keep yourself safe, your crew safe, and to actually be able to to save people who very likely without your help could have died. You, you turned a place of peace into a very tumultuous job. I did. I was lucky. Uh, I don't want to say stumble on the Coast Guard, but um, when I entered the Coast Guard, I had no idea what surfing were. I knew I wanted to do search and rescue, um, and I got the opportunity to go up to Cape D, and that was for me. I loved it. Um, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't take back that time for anything. That was the best. Cape Deke, That's the the name for the the, the Cape Disappointment Cape Station. Disappointment. There. What was the 
um, if people up and down the West Coast and the Coast Guard or, or on the East Coast, um, what did people who weren't at Cape D know about it? What was the reputation? Well, so they have the motor lifeboat school there. Um, so they do a lot of training, but the station, which is operational, we respond to cases. It's kind of the mecca of search and rescue, not just on the West Coast, but uh, in all of the Coast Guard. I mean, there's surf stations up and down the Oregon and Washington coast. You got Grays Harbor, Yukoina uh, Bay, Sayusla, Umqua. Um, but it's the Columbia River is massive. Uh, you take North Jetty to South Jetty. At the mouth of the river, it's two and a half miles wide. Um, if anybody ever gets a chance to go up to the Cape Disappointment Lighthouse or the Lewis and Clark Interpretive Center, it's about 220 feet up in the air, kind of overlooking the bar. It's it's super impressive. But everybody knows about Cape D a, a lot because of the name. Um, you don't forget the name Cape Disappointment. Yeah, I remember when my detailer called and asked if I wanted to go there. I thought he was joking. I'm like, there's not a there's no place called Cape Disappointment. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, an eye-opener. Do you remember the first time you actually went out in those waters? So when I got there, I was kind of low man on the totem pole. You got to train. You got to become, you know, a boat crewman, then a coxswain. And then, you know, some most people don't get qualified to uh, become a surfman. So I don't remember the first time. Uh, I do remember the first time I was there and I went up to the tower and I over, you know, I saw everything and it was, it was big. It was about 15 foot. And I was like, this is definitely the place for me. Hmm. You wanted the challenge. Is that why? Oh, yes, absolutely. What does it mean to be a surfman? That's a good question. I mean, it's, it's a rare and unique job. It's really dangerous. Uh, the Coast Guard was a chapter in my life. Um, we kind of kind of move on, but um, it's something I hold hold in high regard for sure. What about technically? I mean, what is it? What does a surfman actually do? So it all comes down to, I mean, the most important thing is decision making. Um, being able to drive is super important, but being able to drive and make decisions under pressure um, when you got a million things going on and make sound decisions, usually when people have adrenaline flowing, they don't make the best decisions. It's hard to, to think clearly. Um, so I don't know if I answered that well, question. You said being able to drive, meaning being able to drive, say, a 47-foot um lifeboat through enormous waves up and down the waves going sideways right. so, or forwards. So you're taking a 40,000 pound boat and you're hitting anywhere from 12 to 25 foot waves. You have to be smooth or you're going to get hurt when you're, it's like doing a full sprint and running into a brick wall. So everything has to be smooth and calculated when you do it. I, you know, people say, uh, Slow is smooth, smooth is fast. That's definitely uh, true for boat driving in the surf. Hmm. You got some advice from uh, a mentor at one point. He said, every night when you have duty or when you're just lying in bed, think up different scenarios, different situations, try imagining the worst thing that can happen and then the worst thing that can happen after that and try to imagine how you will respond. Did you take that advice? Absolutely. I, yeah, it was great advice. Unfortunately, I didn't get a lot of sleep. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
No, it was it was great advice. I mean, you you always have to be ready. It's it's kind of like being at a, a fire station, you know. And in, in the winter time, when it's big and nasty, and it's mostly commercial fishermen, those guys are smart. But people can get in trouble. Um, so the cases are far and few between. We might get forty or fifty cases in a three month period, or we might only get like fifteen one year in a, in a three month period. Um, so it doesn't happen every night. Um, some surfmen go their entire career and don't do surf cases. Um, so you just, you have always, always ready. That's the motto of the Coast Guard, but you got to be prepared for sure. What would happen in your body and in your brain when the search and rescue alarm would go off? Excitement. Um, get a chance. I mean, there's nothing like going and saving people, you know. Um, just excitement, adrenaline, wanting to go help. Um, yeah, I mean, it's... You know, it, it does remind me, there is a line in your book where you said you, you had been, um, there was the Christmas holidays, you'd been with your family or your wife's family, and then you came back to Cape Disappointment, and a couple weeks after you got back, um, a fishing boat capsized in the middle of January, and then you said it felt like Christmas came a couple weeks late. I feel like sometimes people in search and rescue are less honest about how, that you look forward to these, even if you know that it could be terrifying, that things could go wrong. And we can talk about some of the times they didn't, that there is still something that you actually look forward to about getting the opportunity to respond. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, it's all about opportunity. You don't want to see anything bad happen to people. That's that's not that's not where, where I'm going there. It's it's all about the opportunity to to do good and save people. Like I said, fishermen, that's their livelihood. They're out there. They're they're doing a job. Um, and if something happens, th things happen on the ocean. It's an unforgiving place, especially up in the Pacific Northwest. So just the opportunity to go help. And usually, you know, when it's big and nasty outside, it's dark. Um, the adrenaline's flowing even more. Do you miss that adrenaline? Absolutely, 100%. I was, I was in uh, Florence, Oregon, Sayusla River and Umqua. I miss the surf community. I miss the small towns. I miss the cohesiveness. I miss, um, I miss all of it. Hmm. Uh, I, wish, I wish I would've gone back. Hmm. If you're just tuning in, we're talking right now with Chris D'Amelio. He had a 22-year Coast Guard career, including more than seven years at Cape Disappointment. His new book about that time is called Life and Death at Cape Disappointment. You got a lot of media attention and even an award for a rescue that became known as the Peacock Spit Case. Three boaters were rescued. One died. These, these were three members of the same family, a couple different generations in one family. Do you mind telling us that story? Sure. That was a, that was a tough day. That was, uh, was September 2nd, 2001. We, that weekend was busy, busy. I think around 30 or 40 cases. Um, yeah, that day we went out in the morning, there was actually a boat that capsized two guys passed away. We couldn't get to them. They were getting washed up on the beach. Um, and it was big, especially for September. It was 20 foot plus. It was huge. Um, and a boat had, they were up by the North, uh, North Head Lighthouse. And sometimes when you're coming in the Columbia River and it's big, you can't really line up the Cape D Lighthouse. So they, they lined up the wrong lighthouse and came in and Peacock Spit. And uh, 
they called and then cut out. So we, you know, we automatically got, got underway, uh, rounded the North jetty and got extremely lucky spotting them. I mean, there was a helicopter that, that just got on scene. We got to them right before the helicopter did, but, um, yeah, it was unfortunate. Once we got on scene, they were taking big breaks. I mean, it was 20 foot plus. Uh, and one wave actually blew one of the family members off of the boat and he wasn't wearing a life jacket. We tried to coax the uh, three other guys to to uh, kind of jump off the boat and swim about 10 yards and they they weren't having it, which I totally understand. Uh, the problem was the way we were set up, if we would have just kind of crashed boats and picked them up, they could have got pinned between the boats. Um, and then we had a helicopter above us who was blowing us away from the boat and I tried to communicate with them, but their priority was the rescue swimmer. So it was kind of, uh, logistically challenging. Hmm. Uh, but it was unfortunate. Uh, one of the guys didn't make it and he, ironically, he's the only one that didn't have a life jacket on. Hmm. Um, so Yeah. You write that while the public and even the search and rescue community, you, you got a, a major award for um, for this call because of the three lives that were saved, that, that you've been focusing on in, in the months that followed, maybe, I guess, I don't know, maybe to this day, on the, the one life that you couldn't save. What was it like for you to, to get that award, given the, the way you look at what you did accomplish and what your team was not able to accomplish. Yeah. So I had mixed feelings on it. Um, you could save a hundred people and lose one person. It's probably in my mind, not successful. Um, it was a challenging case. Uh, the crew, I couldn't have done it without the crew. They were awesome. Um, but I, yeah, I still have mixed feelings about it. Um, one of the one of the reasons it was a high profile case because there was the air station was involved there was a lot going on that day uh there was a lot of news um but yeah i, I kind of feel like i'm not sure it's award worthy uh just because we lost somebody the conditions maybe called for it because it was so big and crazy but I don't know, just losing somebody and getting an award for it just doesn't really sit that well, I guess. I have to say, when I read the book, I wondered if you could do anything in terms of this job that would make you feel like you deserved an award. It, it just it sort of seems like you are allergic to that kind of praise. Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think most people in the surf community, it's very selfless. You know, they, they do, people do amazing things all the time without any recognition or are totally fine with it. So what does it mean to you to call somebody a hero or to call somebody courageous? These are words that, that get used to describe the work that you do. Yeah. So I, you know, having a heroic job doesn't make you a hero, <laughs> um, doing something heroic, putting your life on the line when others wouldn't do it. Uh, like, you know, I'll just use a scenario of, uh, someone's out on the beach and they're surfing, they get in trouble and there's a hundred people staring at them watching. And then one guy goes out and saves them. That that's pretty heroic. Um, but it's if really it's your, but if it's your job to do it, it's it's less heroic. Is that the distinction? Kind of, yeah. Hmm. That's kind of how I feel. Like, you know, firemen 
I use the, the fireman analogy a lot, but uh, when you have a mass amount of wildfires, everybody says you guys are heroes. Well, it's really their job, right? Um, same with us. It's it's just a job. Hmm. There was a really striking, I think it's the shortest chapter in the book, and you write about getting in the habit of putting helmets yeah. on the heads of people whose bodies you've recovered, meaning putting helmets on dead people. Why did you start doing that? So this didn't happen very often. One time we picked up a guy that was south of Seaside and it was rough. Uh, his boat had capsized. Uh, he didn't have a life jacket on. Um, passed away. We picked him up, put him on the boat. And on the way in, he, he, he got, I hate to say this, but he got beat up a little bit. You know, those boats are moving around. Um, so <laughs> I got in a little bit of trouble, but um, we try to take care of, you got to take care of people. You know, you can't um, treat them as they were alive. You know, it wasn't our intention to have the guy flopping around on the deck, but th things happen. It is rough. Um, you want to take care of people dead or alive the best you can. Hmm. Unlike someone who's, say, in the military, in, in combat overseas, and they, they have their tour of duty, um, and, and then eventually they come home and that tour is over, you would deal with whatever happened over the course of sometimes many hours of sometimes traumatic service. And then that shift was over and you'd go home. What was that transition like? So I... I handled it pretty good. It was like a switch for me. Work was work, off was off. I didn't bring work home. I didn't talk to my wife about work. Um, she might know if I had a bad day, someone called, hey, Chris had a bad day today. But I, I wouldn't, it was hard to decompress a little bit, um, but I never brought work home. I kind of felt like work is work, home is home, leave it at that. Um, it probably helped that my wife absolutely hates the ocean. So she didn't know what I was talking about half the time, which was great. Um, but yeah, I mean, I look back and I kind of feel like I did a pretty good job of, of separating the two. So you, you didn't wish to have somebody to confide in, to talk about what you had seen or, or to help you process what you'd been dealing with. No, it's really, no. So it's really, you do a case and it's kind of on to the next. You never really find out what happens to the person, you know, if you load them in an ambulance or whatever, you, you never really find out what happens. It's, it's kind of on to the next, on to the next, on to the next. Now the Coast Guard does provide what's called critical incident stress management. So if you have a, a critical situation, you know, where there's death, uh, something traumatic, they have facilitators come in and you can openly talk if you would like uh, to people. I will say that writing the book um, was a little, it was fairly therapeutic for me because I didn't talk about a lot of this stuff. I mean, people know that I worked with and, you know, they had similar situations, um, but you don't really talk about it a whole lot. And I don't know why that is. I don't know if, yeah, I don't know. How did the job of being in the Coast Guard change after 9-11? Oh, big time. So we went from, uh, at Cape D, you know, it was 80% search and rescue to, you know, 20% law enforcement. And that flipped. We were doing security zones, uh, 
as security escorts, uh, checking on critical infrastructure, everything was law enforcement based. I mean, the whole nation was like that. We didn't know what was going on. Um, but it, it changed and I wasn't a huge fan of law enforcement. I really liked search and rescue. Um, but, but it changed the whole coast guard changed. I think, like I said, everything changed. You, you are very clear in the book that you were not a fan of that change. You said it, you felt like you were a maritime mall cop, Yeah, uh, which is a great <laughs> phrase, but so what were you actually doing? And, and do you think that it was worthwhile? No, not necessarily. So we, we would do boardings on uh, big container ships. We would grab three or four guys from the station. And, and in order to do a, you know, a thorough inspection of a container ship, it would take days. Um, those things are massive. So we'd hop on board at the mouth of the river. We'd check the crew manifest, run names, kind of look around and call it good. It wasn't... Uh, we were, there was no playbook for it, you know. Uh, it was all about numbers at the time. Hey, you need to do boardings. You need to check this. Uh, we did the best that we could uh, with the people that we had. We didn't have a lot of people. Uh, we had two boat crews at all times, and that was that was really it. Um, so I I, don't, I guess I don't want to say it wasn't beneficial. Um, the public and the maritime industry knew that we were out there doing these kind of things so maybe it was more beneficial than i think but at the time you know right after 9 11 they wanted us to go check the astoria uh megler bridge i don't know if you've ever been out there but there's thousands and thousands of pilings they were saying hey check for anything that that looks out of the ordinary maybe a bomb we don't know what a bomb looks like and half of the bridge is is you can't get to because it's too shallow so yeah, I mean, it was all of it was a knee jerk reaction. Hmm. Do you mind- understood that? I mean, we just that was that was a terrible time. Hmm. Do you mind telling us about one more attempted rescue? It's the story that you start the book with, and it became a kind of turning point in your career. Yeah, that was a that was a bummer. I was kind of so I had done a lot. I'd run a ton of cases. I don't want to say that you get the feeling of being invincible. I kind of felt that way. And this particular case was like a slow motion, uh, death by a thousand paper cuts. It was, it was, yeah, it was no fun. Um, I, I, to this day, I still think about it a little bit, not from the outcome, but just from the point of people probably don't understand this. Maybe I could have done, or I should have done something different. I'm not sure what that would have been. Um, but I think anytime a a kid's involved, it kind of ratchets up, you know, the emotions, um, and then not being able to do anything and just sit there and stay. It's a very helpless feeling. Hmm. And just for people who haven't yet read the book, uh, it was, I think, a 13-year-old girl who you were unable to save. You say it was, it was too dangerous for you to get the boat closer to her, and her brother did survive. Your yeah, kids, I think he was 13 and she was 9, oh, okay. I believe. Yeah. Your kids were all pretty young when you were working at Camp Disappointment, and you're really clear that you wrote this book so they would have some understanding, a better understanding of of what you were doing when you weren't there, of what your job entailed. What do you most want them to know about what you used to do? So people have no idea what surfmen do. 
and the Coast Guard. Even people in the Coast Guard don't know what surfmen do. So it's a really unique, rare, dangerous job. And like you said, my kids were young um, and I, I didn't really have uh, a whole lot of motivation to write a book. Some people kind of suggested it because I ran some high profile cases. Um, and then I had a medical issue come up um, and I wanted to show them what I used to do. They just know, they just remember us living there. They had no idea what I did. Um, so hopefully they can look back and, you know, someday be proud. You, you do talk about the medical issue near the end of the book and you, you say, I might not get to experience the rest of what is considered a long and happy life. Right. Is that diagnosis part of why you wanted to write this book? Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. Like I said, I wasn't super into writing a book, but then that happened and it was like, well, you know, my kids and the family don't really know what I used to do. So here's an opportunity instead of just telling them, you know, they can't understand. So um, yeah, a hundred percent. At the very beginning, we talked about how um, you loved the ocean, but you didn't say love, you said love, present tense. Do you still just go out and spend time in it? So I, I actually live in Louisiana right now. And There's it's water there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's not, not an open ocean. No. So I'm from a little town, Aptos, California. It's in Santa Cruz. Um, I go home twice a year and that's all I do is surf. Hmm. And then I come here and I think about going home and surfing. <laughs> so I spend as much time as possible in the water. We take vacations down to Pensacola, Florida, and I spend some time in the water. But um, yeah, I think about being in the ocean all the time. Chris, I mean, you know, yeah, so, it's unfortunate. Well, uh, may you have more time in the ocean yeah. instead of just thinking about it. It was a pleasure yeah. talking to you. Thanks very much for this book. Appreciate it. Thank you. That's Chris D'Amelio. He had a 22-year Coast Guard career, including more than seven years at Cape Disappointment. His new book, largely about that time in Washington and Oregon, the mouth of the Columbia River, it's called Life and Death at Cape Disappointment. Tomorrow on the show, we're going to hear about the national effort to disqualify former President Donald Trump from 2024 ballots. Oregon's Secretary of State has declined to bar the former president from the primary ballot, but proponents have appealed her decision to the state Supreme Court. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on NPR's app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. Have a great day. Think Out Loud is supported by Stephen Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust. Michael, Kristen, Andrew Kern, and Anna Sanford 